0: welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Tuesday, February 27, 2024. I'm your reader, Denise. On the front page this morning, history hits the road. Stagecoach Inn crosses roads, fields to become a museum by Emily Anderson of the Gazette. Stagecoach Inn, built in 1841, began the journey to its new life Monday, moving from its home along Highway 6 in West Liberty to Heritage Park, about three miles away, where it will be restored and eventually become a public museum. The Beers and St. John Company Coach Inn was built five years before Iowa became a state as a stagecoach inn and tavern. It became a private residence after the railroad arrived in Iowa City in 1855 and has been one ever since. Its owners, Emily and Nate Cahill, planned to build a new home on the property, so they donated the inn to the West Liberty Heritage Foundation. The three-story inn is about 3,000 square feet. It has four large bedrooms, a foyer, and a small bedroom that was used by the stagecoach driver. This property has got a lot of significance because it was built before the state of Iowa was even a state, said Scott Brooke, a board member of the West Liberty Heritage Foundation. We just couldn't let it go down. We wanted to bring it in and restore it and use it as a museum piece. Traffic was held up Monday as the beers in St. John. Coach Company transferred it along Highway 6 in West Liberty to its new home. The inn, built before Iowa even became a state, is expected to be refurbished and become the museum. Moving the building took a lot of coordination between landowners, utility companies, and the Iowa Department of Transportation, Brooks said. Portions of Highway 6 were closed in both directions Monday, and power lines were taken down along the route to allow space for the building to be safely moved. The Heritage Foundation worked with Goodwin House moving from Washington, Iowa, to accomplish the move. Now that the building is in place at Heritage Park, the next step is to raise funds to help with its restoration. Brooke said the foundation was, hasn't determined yet exactly how much will need to be raised or how long the restoration would take. Once the f- restoration is finished, the foundation intends to open the building as a museum for public visits. Our first goal was just to get it here. Get it here in one piece and get it in on the foundation, Brooke said. We had a really, really narrow window to get this thing moved. We had to get her moved on a certain timeline because of the weather and the ground conditions and everything else, because it had to travel across a couple of farm fields. The building still has much of its original hardware, including doors, doorknobs, fireplaces, and mantles, which Brooke said will make the restoration easier. It's still a pretty solid house. The beautiful thing about it is, for as old as it is, it's not really been modernized and updated. Coraville begins a plan to update its rec center. The Iowa City School District uses the site's indoor pool for swim practice and meets by Alejandro Rojas, The Gazette, Coraville. After 50 years of use, the City of Corvallis is making plans for renovation and possible additions to its recreation center and indoor pool to serve the community for another 50 years. The City is working on a master plan to update its facility and it's teaming up with the Iowa City Community School District in the planning. Sherry Proud, Director of Parks and Recreation for Corvallis, said the center needed updates. The most recent work HVAC, electrical, and a new roof was done 20 years ago. There's a lot of things that are going to need some attention, and so it's a good time for us to look at what we're going to do with this building for the next 50-plus years, Proud said. Kelly Hayworth, Coraville City Administrator, said the center has reached an age when updates are needed. He said 7th and 8th grade pl- graders play club basketball Sunday at the Coraville Rec Center in Coraville. The City of Corville is working on the Iowa City School District to plan a renovation and expansion of the rec center, which includes an indoor pool. There's been previous master plan in 2004 to update the recreation center, but that was never implemented. Plans to update the facility started again when the Iowa City School District, which uses the indoor pool for swim practices and meets, approached the city. When the school district came forth with the questions about the aquatic side of things, That's when we made the decision that it's time to look at the whole building as a whole, in total. Chase Ramey, Deputy Superintendent for Iowa City Schools, said the district was happy to join the city in its plan to renovate the center. They've been a fantastic partner for a long time, and we've used the Corville Pool as our practice and competition pool for West High School and Liberty High School, as well as a couple of our junior highs for their swim programs, Ramey said. Planning for the space... Still is in the early stages. Earlier this month, Corville residents were invited to complete a survey about what they wanted to see included in the project. Among the questions asked were residents' frequency of visits to the center and what existing features or programs at the center they used. The city reports that more than 150,000 people visit the rec center and indoor pool each year. The survey also provided a list of proposed additions, asking residents to select which ones they would like to see. Among those options were a pickleball court, indoor track, batting cage, lazy river, climbing wall, and an e sports suite. On Friday, Proud said roughly 900 people had responded to the survey, and the responses so far had been positive. She said some of the things being requested. The most were an updated competition space for student-athletes, more spectator seating, and more gym space, among others. She also said the most requested new feature was an indoor track, something residents had been asking for before the survey and master plan. As part of the planning process, a group of people visiting other recreation centers in the state. Hayworth was one of the participants on these tours. He said the group visited facilities in Ankeny, Marshalltown, Mount Vernon, Marion, and the University of Iowa's Wellness Center. I think one of the things we were extremely excited about, all the facilities that we saw, how they're really making multiple uses of spaces. Hayworth said. One of the other things is how they're bringing the outside environment into their facility. A lot of natural lighting view corridors into the surrounding areas. Proud said, although it would be nice to include every feature the public has requested, the city will have to keep the eventual budget of the project in mind. That means choices will have to be made about what's included in the final plan and what's not. We hope we can get as many things that are multi-use and make sense so that they're just busy all the time for us, she said. An example of the multi-use space is an expanded gym that could host different sports such as basketball, volleyball, and pickleball or be used as an open gym. The City is working with Water's Edge of Kansas City, Kansas and Newman-Monson Architects of Iowa City. They will take community and staff input and develop a concept. The project budget has not been set. Proud said the master plan phase of the project has cost slightly more than $150,000. That expense is being split by the City of Corville and the Iowa City Community School District, paying $90,000 and $60,000 respectfully. The project is in only the master plan phase currently and in its early stages in general. Proud said a community viewing night will be held June 11th for residents to view rough drafts of the master plan, with a finalized plan coming a few weeks after that. Educators favor house path to bump teacher pay. Plan Boost Pay for Starting and Veteran Teachers, Aids Staff, Support Staff by Aaron Murphy, Gazette, Des Moines Bureau. Multiple proposals to increase the pay of Iowa's teachers and educational support staff are moving through the Iowa Capitol, but public education advocates are particularly receptive to one version. A proposal for the, from majority Republicans in the Iowa House would increase the starting salary for all Iowa teachers over two years to $50,000, set a $15,000 minimum wage for educational support staff such as teachers' aides, and devote $22 million in additional funding to increase salaries for veteran teachers. That bill advanced Monday through the House's State Budget Committee at the Iowa Capitol, as House legislators considered it from a financial perspective. The bill, House File 2611, previously received unanimous approval from the House Education Committee as a policy. The House Republican plan differs from similar proposals presented by Governor Kim Reynolds and majority Republicans in the Iowa State, particularly with its added funding for veteran teacher salaries and support staff minimum wage. From the Iowa Education Association, the statewide union that represent Iowa teachers and other educational professionals thanked Reynolds for starting the conversation, but praised the Iowa Republicans' approach. We really appreciated the House commitment to addressing what is an incredible staff shortage issue in our public schools, Peterson said Monday during a legislative hearing on the proposal. We appreciated the governor's suggestion and to invest a new $96 million to address this issue. But we really like that the House leadership is interested in addressing not just teacher compensation, but educational professional compensation. That's really important. The current minimum beginning teacher salary in Iowa is $33,500. The House bill would increase that to $47,500 for the 2024-25 school year, then $50,000 For the 25-26 school year and beyond. Groups representing Iowa's school boards and school administrators also expressed support for the House bill. One of our members' top priorities is addressing the teacher shortage, and we think being able to pay competitive wages is a great way to address recruitment and retention issues, as well as investment in the support personnel like paraeducators Michelle Johnson, with the Iowa Association of School Boards said during Monday's hearing. So overall, we think it's a great investment. Dave Doughton with the School Administrators of Iowa, said the group supports the House bill for the same reasons and also expressed gratitude for the House approach of making the proposed increase a bill by itself, separating it from legislation that would alter the operation and funding of the state's nine area education agencies. Reynolds put the teacher pay provision in the same bill as her AEA proposal, which has sharply divided Iowans, education advocacy groups, and state lawmakers. As has been mentioned, we have a significant teacher shortage in Iowa, as well as support staff shortage, and we need to find ways to help address that. We think this does it, Doughton said. All three members of the legislative subcommittee panel, two Republicans and one Democrat, moved to advance the House proposal out of subcommittee, and shortly afterwards it was approved unanimously by the full House State Budget Committee. I've been hearing more and more about support staff as well, almost as much as teacher salaries, so I think this is really important bill that addresses that, that issue, said Representative Carter Nordman, a Republican from Panora, who managed the bill through both legislative steps Monday. It's important that we attract teachers into the profession, but also retain teachers. And I think this addresses that. I think this is a good step forward. A spokesman for Majority Iowa Senate Republicans said that caucus is weighing how all pieces of the K-12 public education funding pie for fiscal 2025, which begins July 1, being considered this session fit into overall spending, including general state education funding, teacher and staff salaries, and AEA funding. Those spending levels ultimately will be negotiated by Senate and House Republican leaders. Finishing up on the front page, Iowa justices' lawmakers are protected by privilege. Ruling squashes Latino groups' hopes to shed light on election law changes by Aaron Murphy. Even though not explicitly stated, the Iowa Constitution protects state lawmakers from being required to produce documents during court proceedings, and that privilege extends to communications with third parties the Iowa Supreme Court has ruled. Legislative privilege is implied in multiple sections of the state constitution, and that privilege extends to communications with third parties like lobbyists and constituents, for example, so long as the communication is related to the legislative process the court ruled. The ruling came Friday from a court case in which the League of United Latin American Citizens had sought documents from a number of state lawmakers in the group's challenge of the constitutionality of changes to Iowa's election laws. A district court ruled that state lawmakers should produce some documents from LULAC's request But the Iowa Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision, overturned that lower court decision and quashed the subpoenas for the lawmakers' documents. The unanimous decision, written by Justice Dana Oxley, notes that the case presented the state supreme court's first opportunity to address whether the Iowa constitution supports legislative privilege that issue is more clearly federally and in the other and in other states whose constitutions have a speech or debate clause which Iowa doesn't she noted we now hold that the Iowa constitution contains a legislative privilege that protects legislators from compelled document production and that the privilege extends to communications with third parties where the communications relate directly to the legislative process of considering and enacting legislation, Oxley wrote. However, we need not and therefore do not decide whether the legislative privilege is absolute or qualified. The court ruled that the Iowa Constitution effectively pieces together legislative privilege in three places by expressly calling for separation of power between the three branches of government, giving state lawmakers a privilege from arrest during the session of a General Assembly, and protecting Iowa's right to make known their opinions to their representatives. Reaction to the ruling. LULAC Had requested documents from 11 Republican state lawmakers as the group sought to prove changes to the election law, which shortened early voting times, constrained early voting options, and eliminated absentee voting options, were designed to protect, prevent, or discourage minority populations from voting. Senator Jack Whitver, the Republican Senate Majority Leader from Grimes, praised the ruling as a protection of Iowans' ability to communicate with their elected officials without fear of legal retribution. Iowans and organizations they support must have the freedom to engage with their elected officials on issues of personal importance to them without fear of public retribution from their opponents, Whitver said in a statement emailed to the Gazette. Joe Enrique Henry, executive director of Iowa's LULAC chapter, expressed disappointment in the court's ruling and frustration with statehouse representatives' changes to election laws. While we are disappointed in the court's decision to shield our elected representatives from discovery, their voter suppression laws speak loud and clear, Henry said in a statement to the Gazette. Our work continues and we remain committed to protecting the right to vote in Iowa and specifically the rights of Latino voters in Iowa. Randy Evans, executive director of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council, said the ruling betrays government transparency. Evans suggested state lawmakers should bring themselves under the state's open records law, noting that law applies to the executive branch of state government, including the governor's office and other state offices and agencies. I understand the legal reasoning upon which the Supreme Court based its decision, but the people of Iowa should be troubled by the ramifications of this ruling and should be pushing their lawmakers to take corrective actions, Evans wrote in a statement to the Gazette. The decision blocks the public from having access to any comments or promises or deals lawmakers make in their emails and letters as they hash out or kill proposed laws or existing laws. Voters are deprived of knowing what trade-offs their senators and representatives make or what incentives they are offered. Secrecy merely invites public suspicion and distrust, and that is not good for respect and confidence in our government. In Iowa today, state closes Lansing Bridge, monitors detect movement, sending drivers far north or far south to find detours, from the Gazette. Only months after construction on a new crossing over the Mississippi River in Lansing began, the Iowa Department of Transportation, over the weekend, closed the Blackhawk Bridge, There, after noticing it had moved, sending the estimated 2,200 vehicles that use it every day miles out of their way for a detour. The Iowa DOT said inspectors would examine the bridge Monday and the bridge would be reopened or not, depending on what they find. At this point, we do not have a timeline as to when or if the bridge will reopen, but we will keep you updated, the Iowa DOT said on their website. We will not open the bridge until it's safe and we're sure. A new bridge being built just 50 feet away to connect Iowa's Alamakee County with Wisconsin's Crawford County is not expected to open until late 2026. In the meantime, the Key County Sheriff's Office advised drivers to head far south using Highway 18 between Marquette and Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, or north crossing the river on Highway 14 between La Crescent, Minnesota and La Crosse, Wisconsin. In a Facebook post, the Iowa DOT said it had placed monitors on the bridge before construction on the nearby crossing began and were examining if construction of the new bridge played a part in the movement. It described movement as slight. We placed monitors on the bridge before construction started and are using data from those monitors in our investigation, the agency said. The Black Hawk Bridge opened in 1931 but was closed between 1945 and 1957 after it was damaged by ice dams, the State Transportar- Transportation Department said. The new bridge, which was designed to have a similar look to the historic bridge, will have a 40-foot road width up from 21 feet and have lanes that are 12 feet wide instead of 10 feet. It will stand 15 feet high. 180 instead of 165 feet above the normal water level of the river. Its speed limit would remain at 25 miles per hour. 80% of the $140 million cost will be covered by federal funds and the rest will be split evenly between Iowa and Wisconsin Transportation Departments. And it does show a picture of the bridge and notes the historic Black Hawk Bridge that connected Wisconsin and Iowa is pictured uh, from 2018 from atop Mount Hosmer in Mount Hosmer Park in Lansing. The bridge over the Mississippi River was closed this weekend when movement was detected. In another picture, it shows crews working on building a new bridge over the Mississippi River, connecting Allamakee County with Crawford County, Wisconsin. Work began on the Wisconsin side of the river. UI Seeking New Vice President for Research After Resignation by Vanessa Miller, the Gazette. The University of Iowa has initiated a national search for a new vice president of research, a key member of the president's cabinet, after announcing last week that J. Martin Marty Schultz is resigning after five years. Schultz, hired in 2019 following a national search, will remain vice president until his successor starts negating the need for an interim. Once a new person is in place, Schultz has agreed to serve a stint in the provost's office to help spearhead a campus-wide assessment and realigning of research space, equipment, and infrastructure. More details of what that might entail haven't been made public, but 23 units report to the UI office and of the vice president for research, including the Office of Animal Resources, Human Subjects Office, Institute for Clinical and Translational Science, and the State Hygienic Lab. Direct reports to Schultz include Professor Pat Winokur, co-director of the Institute for Clinical and Translational Science, and Professor Michael Pantella, who leads the State Hygienic Lab. Among its core facilities is UI Pharmaceuticals, the largest university-affiliated FDA-registered pharmaceutical manufacturing facility, facility in the nation. Led by the office, the university in fiscal 2023 secured $704.1 million in external funding, an increasingly important revenue stream for the campus. That total included $561.3 million for research, about 14% below the previous year's $654.4 million. After leaving his vice presidential post, Schultz will continue to hold UI faculty appointments as a biochemistry and molecular biology professor, a chemistry professor and professor of pharmaceutical sciences and experimental therapeutics in the UI colleges of medicine, liberal arts and sciences, and pharmacy respectfully. I am grateful to Marty for his leadership, especially during the challenging impact of the pandemic on scholarly work, UI President Barbara Wilson said in a statement. He has stayed very focused on ways to grow our research activities in line with our strategic plan and to bolster scholarly collaborations across campus. Schultz in September was earning a salary of $416,875, according to the UI database. Officials didn't immediately disclose what his new salary will be once he steps down. Achievements. While atop the university's research enterprise, Schultz helped lead a new campus strategic plan and a period of research expansion. Specific achievements during his tenure include ramping down research operations during COVID and then guiding a phased safe return to campus, navigating a partnership between the State Hygienic Lab and the state of Iowa to rapidly deliver an at-home testing program for COVID, increasing research expenditures 30% from $508 million in 2019 to more than $660 million, Diversifying external funding sources for research and expanding funding from private sources, including foundations. Hiring two tenured faculty as part-time associate vice presidents for research to focus on broader faculty engagement in scholarly activities. Schultz also engaged in national conversations about research policy to ensure that UI is well connected to major sources of federal funding such as the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, Department of Education, Department of Defense, National Endowment for the Arts, and National Endowment for the Humanities. By engaging with large foundations and corporations, Schultz has linked UI research expertise with their priorities pre-Schultz. When Schultz was hired five years ago, he stepped into a newly defined research-specific vice presidential post that separated off what previously had included an economic development component. Cedar Rapids man convicted in second Iowa City sexual assault. He already is serving 34 years after women said he attacked them. By Trish Mahaffey, the Gazette in Iowa City. A Johnson County jury last week convicted a Cedar Rapids man who previously was convicted of sexually assaulting an incapacitated woman for luring another woman up to the roof of a bar in 2017 and sexually assaulting her. Carlos Allen Hivento, 36, on Friday was found guilty of third-degree sexual abuse after a jury deliberated over an hour following two days of testimony. He will be sentenced April 5th to 10 years in prison. He also will be ordered to serve a special sentence of parole and to comply with requirements of the sex offender registry. I am thankful that the victim finally got justice and that he will be held accountable, Johnson County Attorney Rachel Zimmerman Smith said after the verdict. According to a criminal complaint, Hivento approached a woman outside an Iowa City bar on June 28, 2017, grabbed her by the arm and told her he wanted to show her something, and mentioned fireworks. She was then led to the roof of the bar, and at that point Hivento throttled her, forced her to the floor, and sexually assaulted her. The woman told police she tried to use her cell phone to text for help, but Hivento wouldn't let her, according to court records. After the assault, she got Hivento's cell number so she could try to identify him. Shortly after, Hivento sent her a text stating his name was Carlos. Several months later, police had another case with similar circumstances involving a man known as Carlos. The phone number provided in both cases belonged to Hivento, and the calls were made from a phone that belonged to him, investigators determined. That woman, during the sentencing of Havento in July 2021, said she had been drinking with friends at home on November 18, 2018. They then went out to the downtown bars drinking more. Havento found her alone outside and dragged her into a stairwell and assaulted her, recording the attack on video. The woman said she didn't remember much but recalled hitting her head on something sharp. When she woke up, she didn't know where she was, but there was a bright light shining in her eyes, and she realized Hivento was recording her. In that 2018 case, police took her to the hospital where a rape kit was collected. Doctors found bite injuries on her body and bruises down her back from where she'd been shoved down on stairs. The Johnson County jury convicted Hivento in July 2021 of five felony counts of third-degree sexual abuse and two counts of invasion of privacy aggravated misdemeanors. He was sentenced to 34 years in prison. The investigation into that woman's assault led to three other women, one who testified against Havento in last week's trial, accusing Havento of sexually assaulting them outside downtown Iowa City bars in 2017 and 2018. One of the women said she was incapacitated and that Havento recorded the sex acts with his cell phone. Another said he gave her a drink and she blacked out, but someone else witnessed the sexual assault. Vento still faces two more sexual abuse trials on March 19th and July 9th in Johnson County District Court. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Tuesday, February 27th, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Brian Young, 63 passed away on February 23, 2024, after a long illness at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Brian was from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. There will be a private visitation for the family. A memorial service will be held at Marion Christian Church, 1050 McGowan Boulevard, Marion, at 1 p.m. on Saturday, March 2, 2024 burial was held in cedar memorial park cemetery in lieu of flowers a memorial fund has been established in brian's name edith cis louise werner cedar rapids edith Sis louise werner passed away gently at the age of 97 on saturday february 24 2024 in her cedar rapids iowa after a recent health challenge Stuart Baxter Funeral Home and Memorial Services is assisting the family with cremation. Celebration of Sis's life will be held from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. in Sedlicek Center at Cottage Grove Place in Cedar Rapids, Iowa on March 16, 2024. Phyllis Brock. 93, formerly of 14 Montrose Avenue, passed into eternal life, surrounded by her loving family on Friday, February 23, 2024, at Bickford of Marion. Celebration for Life for Phyllis will be held on Wednesday, April 10, 2024, from 9.30 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories, Following the celebration of life, there will be a time for prayers led by a family friend. Internment will take place at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. If desired, memorials may be made to Macular Degeneration Research 22512 Gateway Center Drive, P.O. Box 1952, Clarksburg, Maryland, 20871 1952. To Horizons Meals on Wheels, 2210 9th Street, Suite 1, Coralville, Iowa, 52241, or 819 5th Street, Southeast Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 52401, or to the organization of your choice. Gina Marie Carter Gifford of Marion, 61, passed away on Wednesday, February 7, 2024. She will be forever missed by her family and friends. As per Gina's request, there will be no funeral. There is a celebration of life being held on March 2nd from 1 to 4 p.m. at El Viejo Mexican Restaurant. Contact family for more information. Ellen Wardenberg Tiffin. Ellen L. Wardenberg, age 90 of Tiffin, formerly longtime resident of Iowa City, died in her home February Friday, February twenty third, twenty twenty four. Surrounded by loving family, a visitation will be held from four to six p.m. Thursday, February twenty ninth, twenty twenty four, at Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service, with funeral services beginning at six p.m. Private family graveside services will be held at Memory Gardens Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, a memorial fund has been established to support causes important to Eleanor and her family. For a complete obituary, to share a thought, memory, or condolence, please visit Gay and Chiha Funeral and Cremation Services' website at www.gayandcheeha.com. Floyd Hendricks, Hiawatha. Al has left the building. Wow, there's so much to say that can be said. Floyd Allen Hendricks, a.k.a. Al, has left the stage for the last time. He passed away at his home surrounded by loved ones and listening to his old tapes. There will be a get-together in the spring at a special place. We will let everyone know. Online condolences may be left at the www.iowacremation.com under obituaries. You can watch Floyd's final performance through his YouTube link, HTTPS backslash backslash www.youtube.com backslash watch question mark V equals Capital P, B, six, capital T, zero, G, F, capital Y, lowercase y, capital X, C, capital F, N, A. Daniel Danny Yoder of Kelowna, 90 passed from this life on Sunday, February 25, 2024, at the University of Iowa Hospitals following a brief illness. A funeral service will be held on Saturday, March 2, 2024, at 10 a.m. at the Fairview Mennonite Church. The service will be available via live stream at the Beatty Petersheim Facebook and YouTube pages. Burial will follow at the Fairview Cemetery. A visitation will be held on Friday, March 1, 2024, from 3 to 5 and 6 to 8 p.m. at Fairview. A memorial fund has been established for Fairview Mennonite Church, Pleasant View Home, and Mennonite Disaster Service. The Beatty-Petersheim Funeral Home will assist the family. Peter Van Elswick, Iowa City Peter Van Elswick, 57, died Tuesday, February 20, 2024. To celebrate Peter's life, friends are welcome to gather Friday, March 1, 2024, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Tribute Eatery and Bar, 901 2nd Avenue, Coraville, in the Iowa River Landing. On Saturday, March 2, 2024, friends may gather from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. at Nostalgia in the Fred Maytag Hotel, 109 North 2nd Avenue East in Newton. A Celebration of Life service will be held in June 2024 in Newton. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Peter Van Elswick Memorial Fund, P.O. Box 167, Iowa City, Iowa 52244. And now for sports. Franklin Printy has Waukee 5A semis for girls' state basketball by Jeff Linder. Danny Franklin Pinty coaches in the same manner in which she played, quietly, steadily. Jared is more of a yellow, fr- yeller, Franklin Pinty said of her assistant and husband, Jared Printy. I'm more even keeled. That's just how I am. Senior Sophia Hope has confirmed, can confirm. Jared loses his voice almost every game, she said. Danny, she's more quiet. They are yin and yang. I will say that Danny is the most motivated coach I've ever had. In her third year at Waukee, the Prenties have the fourth ranked Warriors in the Class 5A Girls Basketball State Semifinals after a 46-44 win over number five Ankeny Centennial on Monday at Wells Fargo Arena. Danny graduated from Cedar Rapids, Washington in 2014, Jared from Linmar in 2016. We make a good combination, Danny said. We talk basketball all the time, watch a lot of film together. Franklin Pinty, 28, played here once as a player. Washington reached the Danny Franklin Pinty, a former All-Stater in Cedar Rapids, Washington, and an All-Missouri Valley Conference player at Valparaiso, now his head coach at Waukee, with husband Jared, her assistant. Washington reached the semifinals in her junior year. After that, she played the Valparaiso University. She was a graduate assistant at Mercer College, then served two years an assistant at her alma mater. What brought the couple back to Iowa? family was the main thing. Franklin Printy said. We both have our degrees in education, and we wanted to come back here. It worked out when the Waukee District split into two high schools: Waukee and Northwest. Danny is a sixth-grade math teacher. It takes me, gives me a chance to see who the young ballers are, she said, while Jared teaches high school history. The Warriors have compiled a 41-28 record in Franklin Printy's tenure. Monday, they overcame an early 10-0 deficit, led by as many as 10 points, then won despite going without a field goal in the fourth quarter. I was best ever. It was meant as reassurance. It's not arrogance as if, if it's true. I told the team if they match the energy of any team out there, there aren't many teams that can stay with them, Johnston Coast Chad Gillick said. West Des Moines Valley couldn't. The 5A top-rated Dragons improved to 24-0 and 0 with a 60-31 victory in the tournament's opener Monday. Johnston has blossomed into an early near-dynasty. The Dragons' 10 consecutive state appearances is the longest active streak of any team in any class. They were 5A champions in 2020 and 2022, runners-up in 2021 and 2023. In that decade-long span, their record is 21,729, and the bulk of that has been against elite competition in the Central Iowa Metro League. Best team in Iowa history. If they win it, they're in the discussion, along with Ankeny teams of 2002 to 2005 that rattled off four straight titles. Boy, I don't know, Senior Aliki Tonki said. My sophomore year, we were undefeated, too. The talent keeps getting better and better. Johnston's talent pool runs deep. Tonki has signed with Iowa State. Junior um, Amani Jenkins whose transfer from Des Moines North is the difference between us being a really good team to being a great team, according to Jillick, is a Marquette commit. <clears throat> Senior Aliyah Riley is bound for Northwest Missouri State. Then there's sophomore Jenica Lewis, owner of 30-some Division I offers. I'll start to narrow it down this summer, she said. A couple of them showed up today. I look before each game to know what they're here. What they're here for. Despite the wealth of talents, the pieces fit well. Nobody took more than eight shots Monday. Lewis was six of eight and scored 18 points. You know, if you pass it and they're open, there's a good chance they're going to make it. The Dragons were 22 of 45 from the field. In boys basketball, going his own way, Wes Jack McCaffrey, a top junior, won't play for his dad by Jeff Johnson. Jack McCaffrey. Was asked Friday night after his Iowa City West team had won its Class 4A sub-state semifinal game, if he would was still wasn't planning on playing college basketball for the University of Iowa. Oh no no no! He said, the six foot eight forward is widely considered the top player in the state in the junior class, a top 100 recruit nationally. He's the youngest son of Hawkeye's men's basketball coach, Fran McCaffrey, but he created a bit of a stir around these parts last summer when he told a recruiting reporter he didn't want to stay in Iowa City for college and play for his dad. He didn't want to follow his brothers, Connor and Patrick, to Iowa. He was asked Friday night why he felt that way. It was really hard for my brothers. It was really hard for my mom, Margaret, Jack said. The fans, they were especially tough on Connor because a lot of people don't understand how he affects a basketball game. So that was part of it. He's a coach on the floor, the all-time wins leader. I don't know. I saw that and I didn't like that. I just wanted to try something different. So instead of dealing with negative keyboard warriors and such, he will, as Fleetwood Mac sang, go his own way. Blaze my own path. Do something different than my brothers did, Jack said. I just want to see what it's like. I really like the recruiting process that's happening right now and the coaches that are recruiting me. I think it's the right decision for me. I think doing something different will really help me. McCaffrey goes into West Substate final game tonight against Bettendorf at the Alliant Energy Powerhouse, averaging 15.9 points, 6.5 rebounds, 3.3 assists, and 1.8 blocked shots per game. All those numbers lead the Trojans. He has a long body, and that has added weight and strength the past year. Has a nice fadeaway jump shot. He feels he's definitely a better player who still has room to grow physically and in his game. I'm up to 218 pounds, so the weight is a little different, McCaffrey said. Last season, teams were just way too physical for me, and I couldn't do anything. So I feel definitely like that's the biggest thing. I feel I'm a jumper. I'm jumping better, a lot better. I've really worked on my athleticism. I got a summer of lifting weights three times a week, and during the season, I've been lifting two times a week. I feel that's been a big help for my game. Then it's really working on my ball handling. I feel like I can create my shot a lot better than a year ago. So I just feel like those things put together are gonna help me be a lot better player. So what schools have cued McCaffrey's interest the most at this point? He mentioned Butler, Wake Forest, and Virginia Tech. A decision will not be coming soon. He'll let things play out this spring and summer, likely take some official visits in the fall. I really love Butler. He's visited it twice, said McCaffrey, who was cited for failing to yield to a jogger who later died in May. I was there last Saturday, and Hinkle Fieldhouse was rocking. I love Coach Thad Matta. He's one of my favorite people. Assistant coach Alex Barlow and coach Maurice Joseph have really been recruiting me well. Coach John Diebler. So I feel like that's a good place right now. Ohio State was on me hard until that whole thing. Coach Chris Holtman was fired. Just happened. I really like Wake Forest. Coach Steve Forbes was there. Then an assistant came. So that was good. They're probably the, those are probably the main three. Seventh-ranked West, 18-3, and three, shoots for its first state tournament trip since 2020 on tonight when it plays Bettendorf, 16-6. Bettendorf's Caden Wilkins is one of the top seniors in the state. In Sports Day, events of area interest, girls basketball, state tournament at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines, boys basketball, Class 4A sub-state finals. Tonight, all games at 7 p.m. unless noted, Class 4A substate Finals Metro Area. Cedar Rapids-Kennedy, 22-0 versus North Scott, 16-6 at Alliant Energy Powerhouse at 8 p.m. Iowa City West, 19-3 versus Bettendorf, 16-6 at Alliant Energy Powerhouse at 6.30 p.m. In the state, Ankeny, 16-6 versus Ankeny Centennial, 17-6 at Southeast Polk. Cedar Falls, 19-3. Versus Waukee Northwest fifteen and eight at Marshalltown, Dubuque Senior twenty and two versus Pleasant Valley seventeen and five at Dubuque Hempstead, Sioux City East twenty one and two versus Johnston thirteen and nine at Fort Dodge, Waukee sixteen and seven versus Dallas Center Grimes nineteen and three at Indianola, West Des Moines Valley seventeen and five versus Nor- Norwalk eighteen and five at Des Moines Lincoln. State Tournament Pairings Class one A quarterfinals Monday march fourth ten thirty AM North Lynn twenty three and one versus Woodbine twenty three and two. At twelve fifteen PM Winfield Mount Union twenty and two versus Linwood Sully twenty four and one. At two PM Bellevue Marquette twenty five and one versus Gladbook Rhinebeck Twenty-one and five, and at three forty-five p.m., Lake Mills twenty-four and one versus North Union twenty-two and three. Class two a quarterfinals on Monday, March fourth, five thirty p.m. Western Christian twenty and three versus Iowa City Regina seventeen and six. At seven fifteen p.m., West Burlington twenty-two and zero versus Trainer twenty-one and three. On Tuesday, march fifth at ten thirty AM Hudson twenty three and two versus Grundy Center twenty and three. At twelve fifteen PM Underwood twenty four and zero versus Orange City Unity Christian twenty and four. In girls basketball state tournaments at Des Moines Wells Fargo Arena Monday, Class five A quarterfinals, Johnston sixty, West Des Moines Valley thirty one. Waukee, 46, Ankeny, Centennial, 44, Cedar Falls, 71, Davenport North, 65, West Des Moines-Dowling, 53, Pleasant Valley, 48. Class 3A quarterfinals, Esterville, ELC, 61, Forest City, 47. Mount Vernon with a 23-1 record versus Harlan, 20-3, late. And Des Moines-Christian with a 23-1 record versus Benton Community, 18-6, was a late game. Today, Class Three A quarterfinals, 10 a.m. Solon, 21 and three versus Dubuque Wallert, 19 and five. Class Four A quarterfinals, 11 a.m. Clear Creek Amana, 23 and o versus Gilbert, 15 and nine. 1:30 p.m. Dallas Center Grimes, 20 and three versus North Polk, 22 and two. At 3:15 p.m. Waverly Shellrock 23 and o. Versus Sioux Center, seventeen and six, at five p.m. Sioux City Heland twenty-two and one versus Lewis Central, nineteen and four, Class Two A quarterfinals, six forty-five p.m. Dyke New Hartford, twenty-three and two versus Cascade, seventeen and six, at eight thirty p.m. Sioux Central, twenty-one and one versus Eddyville, EBF, twenty-three and one, on Wednesday at ten a.m. Panora 23 and 1 versus Grundy Center 21 and 2. At 11:45 am, Westwood 21 and 0 versus Central Lion 20 and 3. In class 1A quarterfinals, 1:30 pm, North Lynn 23 and 1 versus Montezuma 20 and 4. At 3:15 pm. Council Bluff St Albert 22 and 1 versus Algona Garrigan 23 and 1. At 5 pm, 23-1. Twenty-two and two versus Calamus Wheatland, twenty-four and one. Six forty-five p.m. Remsen St. Mary's twenty-three and zero versus Martinsdale St. Mary's, eighteen and six. On Thursday, Class Five A semifinals at ten a.m. Johnston twenty-four and zero versus Waukee nineteen and four. At eleven forty-five a.m., Cedar Falls twenty-three and one versus West Des Moines Dowling twenty and four. In Class Three A Semifinals, 1 p.m. Esterville E.L.C. twenty-three and two versus Mount Vernon twenty-two and three, Harlan twenty-one and three winner. Uh, at 3:15 p.m., Des Moines Christian twenty-four and one versus Benton Community nineteen and six winner versus Solon twenty-two and three, Dubuque Wallert twenty and five winner. Class 4A semifinals, 5 p.m., top bracket, and at 6.45 p.m., the bottom bracket. On the Insight page, Linmar residents vote on the PEPL on March 5th. The Linmar Community School District has changed considerably and grown significantly since 1948 when our district consisted of a dozen one-room schoolhouses and two and a single two-room building. Today, Linmar is the 12th largest district in Iowa with approximately 7,600 students. It is the mission of more than 1,200 teachers and staff members to help those students become lifelong learners equipped with the knowledge and skills they need to become successful in a unique and ever-changing world. A key part of achieving success is providing our students and staff with a high-quality education environment where they can focus on learning. Our community understands that, as evidenced by more than $100 million that has been invested in new construction and renovation projects since 1997. One of the ways Linmar has protected those investments is by continued maintenance made possible by the District Voter-Approved Physical Plant and Equipment Levy, or PEPL. Voter-approved PEPLs are common in Iowa, with more than 83% of the districts having one in place in the previous fiscal year. Some of these levies date back more than a quarter century. Per state law, the funds they generate can be used only for infrastructure and equipment repairs, purchases and improvements. In Linmar, a PEPL has been in place for several years and provides crucial funds that have been used for roof repairs, purchase computers, improve school security, maintain HVAC systems, and replace school buses, among other needs. A PEPL must be approved by a community's voters every 10 years. That's why on Tuesday, March 5th, Linmar residents are being asked to consider extending the district's levy through 2035 so that future investments can be made in our schools. If renewed, the PEPL will continue with the existing rate of $1.34 per $1,000 of taxable property value. This will generate approximately $3.5 million to $4.7 million annually based on the district's taxable valuation, increasing by 3.5% each year. If you would like to learn more about the Voted PEPL and how it supports Lynn Marr School District and our students, please visit bit.ly slash P-P-E-L. Thank you for your consideration and engagement in this important issue. Amy Kortmeyer is Superintendent of the Lynn Marr Community School District. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Tuesday, February twenty 2024. I'm your reader, Denise. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iwaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
1: of Economic Geology, this is EarthDate. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting, there must have been considerable interbreeding. Since we can find 1 to 3% of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.